then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back to normal. normal. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch if, I mean, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaven. When you're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Food. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new, rushed through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal? Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa, like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly 95% of um, the victims of Falun Gong practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Defender podcast. We are coming to you from the greatest country in the world, deep in the heart of the Lone Star State, Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Paul Aguilar. And if you guys are watching this on YouTube, I really appreciate if you guys could go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well as that bell icon. That'll really help us out. Uh, also, if you can go ahead and um, give us a thumbs up as well, that would really help us out as well with the algorithms. Um, if you guys are on the go, make sure you guys stop in uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as Apple Podcasts. You can find us on there, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. Um, if you guys want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Defender Podcast, Instagram at Truth Defender Podcast, as well as Facebook. Uh, we have a Discord and a PayPal set up as well, which we can go ahead and link down below. Um, it's not that big of a deal there. Um, but if you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, or if you have any guests or topic recommendations you'd like to get out to us, you can email us at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Um, our next guest is Derek Gilbert. Mr. Gilbert hosts Skywatch TV and co-hosts the weekly video program Sci Friday and Unraveling Revelation with his wife, author and analyst Sharon K. Gilbert. He's been interviewing guests for his podcast, A View from the Bunker, since 2009. Uh, Mr. Derek is a Christian, a husband and father, and the author of the groundbreaking books, Bad Moon Rising, an analysis of the spiritual forces behind Islam, The Great Inception, and Last Clash of the Titans. He's also the co-author with Sharon Gilbert, his wife as well, of Veneration, a book on the pagan cult of the dead on ancient Israel that reveals hidden prophecies of the return of the evil dead at Armageddon. And with Josh Peck, Peck, I'm sorry, The Day the Earth Stands Still, which documents the occult origins of ancient aliens. Without further ado, 
Mr. Derek Gilbert. Mr. Gilbert, how are you doing, sir? It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you stopping by. Um, so I guess we're going to go ahead and start off here. Uh, we're going to jump right into it as well. Um, we're going to be speaking about the Book of Enoch. Um, and I don't know, I didn't speak with you prior to speaking with you here. Um, but I'm kind of, I think, in the same, I guess, boat as everybody else, that in the sense that we've heard of the Book of Enoch, uh, we know, we kind of know what it is. Um, I've, I actually have the Book of Enoch, but I've been trying to get through it for years. That's <laughs> where I pick up little pieces here and there. Um, but for anybody that's you know actually heard of the Book of Enoch but has no idea what it is, can you kind of explain what it is, um, when it was written, and where, if indeed, it fits into the book of the Bible? Because I know you know it's not they actually took it out. There's like 14 books that have actually been taken out of the Bible, but where does that kind of fit in, or if not, like where does that leave it? Well, the Book of Enoch is not part of the canon of Scripture, except in the Ethiopian Church. The Coptic Church has considered it uh, canonical Scripture, but uh, there is a lot of evidence, and uh, the real expert on this would be Dr. Michael Heiser, who's written the book Reversing Hermon, which is all about the presence of the Book of Enoch in the Bible, especially the New Testament. Um, Enoch was, it's named for the patriarch, mentioned very briefly in the book of Genesis, who uh, was, according to Genesis, was caught up in heaven without, uh, without seeing death. So we don't get very much about Enoch in the Bible, but we see a lot more, uh, there, there's a whole genre of, of Jewish religious texts that date to the second temple period. This is the, te the period between the return of the Jews from Babylon in the 5th century BC and the destruction of the temple around the year 70 AD or 67 AD, 70 AD uh, by the Romans. So during that period, you've got, um, you know, some of the, the minor prophets, the later prophets, and of course, the uh, Jesus and the apostles, uh, who were clearly aware of the book of Enoch, because there are direct references to the, uh, the main theme of Enoch in Peter, specifically Second Peter, and in the short epistle of Jude. But uh, as Dr. Heiser points out, there are a number of other things in the New Testament that clearly derive from the book of Enoch. It was not written by Enoch, as far as we know, because he was before the flood, and there's right. not much record of anything written surviving the flood. Um, but it is clearly, it, it, its, its value is in this. It shows us what the Jews of that second temple period, so that period between the time of their return from Babylon and the time of the destruction of the temple, what Jews thought about the spirit realm, about the nature of good and evil, the relationship between uh, God and his loyal angels and those angels who have rebelled against him. Uh, the origin of evil is, is a, a key theme in, in the book of Enoch. Um, and, and again, I'll borrow an example from Dr. Michael Heiser. And forgive me if I refer to him a lot, but he is you know, really more studied on this uh, than I am. You know, I've read some of it and tried to incorporate some of it into the research that Sharon and I do for our books. Uh, especially things like veneration in our forthcoming book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. But Mike is really the scholar on this subject. But what we see in the book of Enoch, well, the example he gives is this, and, and the value of Enoch. If you ask a Christian today in the 21st century, an American Christian, why is the world in such a lousy state? Why, are, why do bad things happen to good people? Typical reaction will be, well, it's because of the fall. 
the fall from grace, the sin in the Garden of Eden. Christians uh, are, are very aware that in Genesis chapter 3, a creature called the serpent, actually it's the Hebrew word is nakash, and there's good reason to believe that that was not, in fact, a talking snake, but we can deal with that separately. Uh, and, to a, a, and so that sin, that rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden is the reason that sin and death entered the world, which the Bible explicitly states. So yes, that is true insofar as it goes. But a Jew of the time of Jesus, if you asked a Jew of the second temple period, why is the world in such a mess? They said, well, there was the rebellion in the garden, Genesis 3. There was the Tower of Babel incident, which is Genesis uh, 10. Uh, is it 10 or 11? I forget which chapter. But anyway, uh, Genesis 10 or 11. And then you got the, uh, uh, the Genesis 6 incident, which is where the sons of God descended, saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of all that they chose. There's four simple verses there, and it uh, relates that uh, from this, this forbidden union of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim in Hebrew, and the daughters of man, the, uh, the giants were born, uh, the Nephilim. And uh, they were on the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, you know, went into is a, a euphemism that means had relations with. Um, and as Mike points out, the, the word translated when in Hebrew can actually mean whenever. So uh, we're on the earth also after that, whenever the sons of God went into the daughters of men. The key thing about the book of Enoch is that it makes it very plain, very clear that these sons of God were not contrary to what, what pastors are taught in seminary, contrary to what the majority of Christian theologians have believed for the last 1,600 years. They were not the righteous sons of Seth, of the line of Seth, who was the third son of Adam and Eve. Seth was born after Cain killed Abel. So it was the understanding of the Jews of the Second Temple period it was the understanding of the early Christian church that the, the, the text of Genesis 6 means exactly what it says, that the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, were angelic beings who rebelled. They crossed the species barrier, if you will, which was forbidden. And from this uh, forbidden union, this unholy union, were born these monstrous creatures called the Nephilim, giants who uh, brought sin and wickedness into the world. Now, that's not explicit in the biblical text. That's not explicit in the Bible. But in the book of Enoch, it is. It's clear when you read, and what we call the book of Enoch is really the book of first Enoch. There's a second and a third, and those get progressively weirder. Right. Uh, but the, the book of first Enoch really helps us understand what was in the minds of Jewish religious thinkers and also early Christian theologians, that it was not just this union that produced these Nephilim that was the sin of the Watchers. And this is what Mike Heiser uh, really goes into detail about in his book, Reversing Hermon. It was the things that they taught humanity that we weren't supposed to know. Uh, quoting now from the, uh, uh, the book of Enoch, uh, Azael, which is Azazel. Azael taught men to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. We weren't supposed to know that kind of thing. Uh, there were other things like, uh, uh, like, you know, eye adornment and makeup, which is, you know, not in and of itself a sin, but if you're using it for, you know, uh, breaking down the boundaries of uh, biblical marriage, for example, or God's ordained model for the family, that, that becomes a sin. Uh, things like um, 
fortune telling, uh, you know, the cutting of roots to tell fortunes, uh, divining the future from the stars, uh, uh, sorcery, witchcraft, necromancy, things that we weren't supposed to know. That was the sin of the Watchers, bringing us forbidden knowledge. And in fact, we see later in texts from uh, Babylon that one of the things Babylon was most proud about was that its uh, uh, priestly class who were engaged in the occult had preserved the pre-flood knowledge. In fact, Gilgamesh, who's the legendary king of Uruk, uh, who lived after the flood, is remembered as being the one who preserved this knowledge. He was called Lord of the Apkalu, or Master of the Apkalu, in a cylinder seal that was found. Uh, the Apkalu, simply the Mesopotamian name for the characters that we call the Watchers. And the Watchers is a class of angel, apparently. That term is used in the Book of Enoch. It's also used in uh, the Book of Daniel, chapter four of the Book of Daniel, where uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream and he needs somebody to, to, um, trans, uh, to, to uh, translate it for him, to interpret it for him, and that Daniel is found. But in that dream, uh, the watchers are said to decree a punishment on Nebuchadnezzar for his sin of pride. So apparently this was an angelic class that had some responsibility that had been delegated by God. And they carried that out in chapter 4 of Daniel. Well, the Watchers were known, again, to the Mesopotamians as Apkalu, who were supernatural sages, wise men, who brought the gifts of civilization to mankind. Now, this is the, the pagan version of the story. This is the fake news version of the story, if you will, that was told to the Mesopotamians and preserved in their myths and legends. But even in their story, it's interesting when you compare the myths and legends of Mesopotamia uh, from Babylon, from Sumer, from Akkad, from um, the Canaanite uh, civilizations and, and city-states around ancient Israel, you see that they're essentially describing the same story, but from a different perspective. It's like getting the, uh, you know, the Fox News version on one hand and the MSNBC version on the other hand yeah. of the same story. So you get a story from uh, a, a Mesopotamian epic called the Epic of Era, E-R-R-A, who was the god of war, also known as Nergal, god of the underworld. And in this story, the chief god of Babylon, Marduk, tells of how he once lost his temper and then condemned the Apkalu to go to the abyss, the Apsu, and never return. Well, interestingly, that's the same fate of the sons of God who sinned that we see in 2 Peter 2.4. In 2 Peter... Uh, chapter 2, he's describing how God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but rather condemned them or thrust them down to hell. Well, that hell is the word in our English Bibles, but actually the word in Greek is Tartarau. So a better translation is he thrust them down to Tartarus, not Hades. Hades is the equivalent of Sheol, what we would call hell. Tartarus was a special place reserved for supernatural rebels who had to be confined. And interestingly, you know, Peter, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit and surrounded by Greek speakers, living in a culture that had been dominated by the Greeks for 300 years, knew the difference between Hades and Tartarus. He chose that word specifically. And interestingly, when we move from Mesopotamia to the Levant, which includes Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, you know, Western Syria, to the Greek culture, we also read about a group of supernatural rebels who were banished to Tartarus. They were called the Titans, the old gods of the Greeks. 
And again, it's a fake news version of the story where Zeus and the Olympians overthrow the Titans and banish them to Tartarus, along with some other uh, uh, monstrous uh, rebels that uh, try to overthrow Zeus, like a Typhon, the chaos monster. But um, again, when we compare that to the Bible, the only example we see in the Bible of angelic rebels who are confined to Tartarus are these rebels who, in the context of Second Peter 2 and also in the book of Jude, we see that their sin was clearly a sexual sin. This points to Genesis 6 because that's the only, only example of a divine or supernatural rebel in the Bible committing that type of sin. There are other supernatural rebels mentioned, Leviathan for one, Satan for another, but their sin is never described as sexual. It's only that in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim. Uh, so that's what we see in the book of Enoch, and that's where its value is in helping us to understand better this little incident that gets barely a mention in Genesis 6 yeah. and gets kind of a sideways mention in Second Peter and in Jude. The book of Enoch goes into some detail on this, and there are some other texts from about that same time period that cover the same topic. But it's clear from the Bible, just those mentions in Peter, Second Peter, and in Jude, and then in the writings of many of the early church fathers, for the first 400 years after the revelation or after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, until about the time of Augustine, every church theologian from the early church who wrote about the origin of demons or the origin of evil on earth always comes back to Genesis chapter 6. And again, that's where the value is in Enoch because it helps us understand what the Jews of Jesus' day thought about the origin of evil and the origin of demons. Yeah, it's so kind of like, so, I mean, I read up a little bit on kind of what we know about Enoch, um, you know, obviously he was prior to Noah's flood, um, but he lived, I think it was what, 365 years is what it was, 64 years? Mm -hmm. 365 um, years, right. Yeah, so he was, he was actually, what, I think the only person that's actually never died, he was actually taken by God. Oh, him and Elijah. And Elijah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of, I mean, you don't really have too much information on like, who he was, you know, things like that. But, I mean, it's just, so I had heard somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not. I don't, I don't think it was. I just heard it in passing somewhere. But wasn't he the grandfather of, was it, I don't think it was Noah, was it? Was it Noah? I, I want to say, I don't think it was, but. Um, I, I think it was, uh, I think it was great grandfather. Great grandfather. Okay. I, I would have to look, but I'm, I'm going to do that real quick. Right, right. No, yeah. Um, I know because it was, he was a father to Methuselah. I know that, um, son of Jared, but, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously the flood was kind of in response or not kind of in response, but in response to kind of the chaos that was happening on the world uh, when it came to like the Nephilim and you know things like that. But, um, I guess, does, is there, I mean, I've heard stories and I've seen stories of, you know, giants that are still on the earth today, you know, that they're actually sleeping and, you know, one day they're all, all going to come back. How does, I guess, is that kind of why the Book of Enoch isn't, I guess, isn't kind of, um, I wouldn't say mainstream knowledge, but why they took it out of, like, out of the Bible, you know, why it's just not in there with everything because it just kind of explains a whole different side of what was going on then or how did that work that work well uh, again i'm not uh, i'm not an expert as to why it was not considered canonical there was some debate in the uh, early church as to whether it should be or not um 
and, and frankly, a lot of the Book of Enoch is really, really weird. It's odd, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> the, there are probably reasons, good reasons. Well, I wouldn't say probably. There are good reasons if the Holy Spirit deemed it so as it guided the early church to compile the canon of Scripture that it was left out. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of texts that are not in the Bible that can be helpful to us in understanding better the, uh, you know, our walk as Christians, uh, what pagans believe, what the early church believed. Uh, you know, Sharon and I read a lot of material. Well, uh, again, going back to Mike Heiser, he uses as a great example, the Baal cycle. For example, uh, and by the way, I was right. It, uh, 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 Enoch was the great grandfather of Noah. So Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Okay. Um, uh, the, uh, the Baal cycle is quoted a couple of places in scripture, most uh, obviously in Isaiah 27, verse one, where he describes, uh, Isaiah describes Leviathan, which again is the primordial chaos monster as that fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. Those phrases are used exactly word for word in the Baal cycle in the description of Yam, which is the uh, sea monster or sea, the god of the sea, sort of the equivalent of Poseidon, right. except that to the Canaanites, the, uh, the Amorites, Yam was a, uh, was a dragon-like creature because the uh, Baal cycle goes on to call him the encircler with seven heads and refers to him as uh, Tununu, which is a, a cognate, which means same word, different language, hmm. to the Hebrew word Tanin, which means dragon. Okay. So the sea in the Old Testament uh, is, is also called Yam. That is the Hebrew noun that means sea but it's also a representation of primordial chaos for that reason. The Hebrews knew what their pagan neighbors believed, and so it's helpful to us to understand what the pagans believed around ancient Israel so we can see when the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel were writing things that only make sense if you understand what their neighbors believe. And in this case, again, Isaiah directly quoting from the Baal cycle in his description of Leviathan, also quotes from the Baal cycle in his description of Yahweh, God, as the rider in the clouds, or the rider on the clouds, which is how Baal is described in those Canaanite religious texts. Now, does that mean that Isaiah was copying from the pagan text, that Yahweh was simply a creation of the Hebrews, copying from their pagan neighbors, that Yahweh is really Baal, or Yahweh is really El, the creator god of the Canaanites? No, that's not what it means at all. Although there are skeptics out there who will say that, oh yeah, it does. No, what it means is, Isaiah knew what their pagan neighbors believed. Ezekiel knew what their pagan neighbors believed. Uh, Moses knew what their pagan neighbors believed. And a lot of what's in scripture, in the Psalms, for example, are, are polemics written against what the pagans believed, saying, okay, you think Baal is the rider on the clouds? No, no. Yahweh is the rider on the clouds. He is the true... In fact, uh, and there are physical examples in Scripture, some of the events that don't make a lot of sense. I mean, from our 21st century viewpoint, we look at, uh, for example, the parting of the Red Sea right. as just an opportunity for, what, you know, Cecil B. DeMille to create some really great special effects. No, uh, this was a spiritual message directed at Baal. Uh, the same with uh, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on, on Mount Carmel. How, did, uh, how was the sacrifice consumed? Well, the Bible says fire from heaven. Well, what's another term for fire from heaven? Lightning. Right. Guess what? That was the weapon of the storm god, Baal. Mm. This was Yahweh saying, no, no, you think you're 
the one who wields the lightning? Watch this. I'll bring the fire. Uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea was because Baal became the king of the, uh, the, the Canaanite pantheon mm. by defeating Yam, this uh, encircler with seven heads, this fleeing serpent, twisting serpent in hand-to-hand combat. And if you'll notice at the beginning of Exodus chapter 14, <laughs> I didn't remember this from the movie with Charlton Heston, but it begins with God telling Moses to turn back, turn around. Right and camp at a place called Baal Zephon. What is Baal Zephon? It's named for the mountain of Baal, Mount Zephon, which is in Turkey today, very close to Antioch, ancient Antioch. It's called Jebel al-Akra today. Hmm. Uh, Everyone in the ancient world knew that's where Baal's palace was located. So God, why was he in Egypt? Because Egypt had just been under the control of Amorites from Canaan for the previous 100 to 200 years. Scholars still argue about that. But their chief god was Baal. In right. fact, even 200 years after the Exodus, the Pharaoh, Ramses the Great, was still worshiping Baal. There was a lot of cross-pollination in the religion of the Egyptians and the, and the Jews, or not the Jews, but the, uh, the pagan Amorites and Canaanites, which we didn't know about until the last 40 years or so, until some of these texts have been translated that were recently discovered in places like Syria and Iraq. Right. Bottom line is, the parting of the Red Sea was a spiritual message from God not just to the followers of Baal, but to Baal himself. The same with the, uh, the encounter on Mount Carmel. And so many of these things that, uh, that we know about what the pagans, who the pagans worship and how they worship them right. helps us to better understand some of the weirder parts of the Bible and why those things are in there. Uh, these small g gods are real entities. God in the Bible calls them gods. So we're on sound, you know, solid theological ground here when we say, you know, these entities, Baal and Molech and Chemosh and Dagon and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Astarte and the, the queen of heaven. God is calling them out. I mean, read Psalm 82 sometime. Hmm. It is essentially a courtroom scene in which God condemns these fallen angels for ruling unjustly. And it says, a day is coming when, though you are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So it, it, lo- looking at texts like Enoch, even though it's not in the Bible, right. is similar to looking at some of these pagan texts that have been found in ancient Mesopotamia or ancient Greece. Helps us understand what they believed, and that helps us make more sense out of some of those difficult to understand parts of the Bible. Right. It was, yeah, I was thinking about when you mentioned Canaan, um, wasn't that, uh, I think it was Numbers 13 when, when, when God spoke to Moses and told them for him to go spy on the land of, of Canaan. Right. Um, and then they came back and said that it was full of giants and, you know, they were eating like, you know, like humans and stuff like that. It's, it's just, yeah. Well, again, that's, that's in the book of Enoch, which is, yeah. uh, again, just to demonstrate how evil these, uh, these entities were, they were not only eating you know, people, they were eating one another. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, when you read Greek mythology, there is a, uh, uh, a, a, an, a, an event that's called the Gigantomachy, which is the war of the giants against the gods, the Olympians. Right. And um, I, I believe that that is an echo of that period of history before the flood, when the giants were basically threatening to destroy the land. Right. But uh, yeah, in Numbers 13, it's interesting because this is something that Sharon and I looked at for our book, Veneration, um, because you know we, we're totally open to the idea 
that these giants were literally giants before the flood, right. and that there may have been giants walking the land after the flood. But until we can actually document the existence of the, the skeletons to prove it, and, and I know that L.A. Marzulli, Steve Quayle, Tom Horn have done some excellent work in documenting the cover-up. You know, Tim Alberino on the island of Sardinia with witnesses to say that uh, you know, very, very large skeletons and excavated from some of the tombs of the giants that are all over the island of Sardinia and taken away by the Vatican. Right. So, okay, we're open to that. But since we can't document it, what we did was look at the things that we can document, which are these religious texts from the ancient pagans around ancient Israel. And what we can document is that they venerated the spirits of these mighty men who were of old. Moses did not invent the Rephaim to fill space in the books of Deuteronomy and Numbers. <laughs> they were known to the pagans around ancient Israel who venerated them. Right. In fact, there's a scholar from Estonia by the name of Amar Anus who has proven that the etymology, the origin of the name of the old gods of the Greeks, the Titans, the ones who are locked away in Tartarus, actually derives from the name of an ancient tribe of Amorites, the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel, this tribe called the Tadanu. It's documented in ancient Mesopotamia. The Sumerians were very, very afraid of them. In fact, they built a wall 175 miles long to try to protect their kingdom from, the, from this marauding tribe called the Tadanu. And, and we know this because the, the clay tablets describing this wall actually call it the Amorite wall that keeps the Tadanu away. Right. It, so but they didn't keep the Tadanu away. They actually <laughs> destroyed that last Sumerian kingdom. And uh, by the time of Moses, uh, what, what we know from pagan texts that have been found in Syria is that these Tadanu were considered a special group in the underworld called the Council of the Tadanu. And dead kings, kings when they died, wanted to become a part of this council of the Tadanu after mm -hmm. death. They wanted to become a titan. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's funny that you mentioned the wall because so I've I've had this in my mind for since I can I can remember. But um, what was the Great Wall of China built for? I've always had this kind of thought that it was probably meant to keep try to keep giants out i've always heard like stories and you know you just, you'd always hear things i mean not to say that it's true or anything like that but i mean i just i just always had that thought in my head that it, it could have been built for something like that at that time it um, is pretty massive yeah i mean it stretches all across you can see it from space i mean it's it's huge so i mean that's i'm just throwing that out there but i just had always thought like i just had that thought in my head since i was you know, real young that that might have been built for something like that, like way back in the day, uh, maybe to keep something out or maybe to keep something in, you know, who knows, but it's definitely interesting. I mean, yeah, out there. <laughs> Needs more but, research. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, bones that, that supposedly they've been finding out there and they take to the Vatican. Um, it's just, I mean, I spent, some time in the military, so I know about that side of, you know, like you mentioned, Ali Marzulli, when, you know, those things that he's been reporting as well, that they're actually flying right. it's incredi Yeah, incredible reports of the Kandahar Giants. So, uh, you know, again, we're totally open to the, the existence of these things, no question. Right. But, um, you know, when, when we dug into, for example, the story of Goliath, you know, all of us have been told that Goliath was this, uh, this monstrous giant, it was like nine feet, nine inches tall. 
uh, the Bible, our English Bible say six cubits in a span, and a cubit is a foot and a half, 18 inches. Okay. But when you go back and you dig into the, the Hebrew texts, the oldest Hebrew texts put him at four cubits in a span, which is six foot nine. Okay. So not quite, you know, you know, uh, unusually big, except that back in that era, you know, the days of uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, the average Israelite man was only five foot four. So, you know, I looked that up. So Definitely. if you're five four and you're facing a guy who's been trained from his youth as an elite warrior, who's six foot nine, and that's something that Saul mentions to David when David says, you know, send me, I'll go. And Saul's right. like, this, this, this man is a warrior from his youth. He's been trained for this since he was a boy. You're a shepherd. Right. So that, that's, that was his point. But the other thing that's really intriguing about this, and this gets back to the, the, the things we weren't supposed to know referred to in the book of Enoch, this, this communications, communicating with the dead, which God forbid when he gave the law to Moses. Hmm. Don't consult with mediums. Don't consult with necromancers, those who summon the dead. Right. When David and his men in 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 21, do battle with a number of other giants besides Goliath, uh, there are references to them who are uh, that uh, the giants of Gath are called descendants of the giant. I'm going to look this up here to make sure I get the phrase correct. I'm pretty sure it's 2 Samuel 21. Um, yeah, beginning at verse 15. And um, descendant of the giant, the phrase in Hebrew there is uh, Yelade ha Rafa. Uh, Rafa is the root behind which we get the term Rephaim. So there's this understanding that the Rephaim were giants. Well, yes, they were the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. Okay, so these are the spirits of the giants pre-flood, the spirits of the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. But the key here is that the word Yelade does not mean blood descendant. If these were the blood descendants, the genetic descendants of the giants, the term, the correct term in Hebrew is bene, like bene ha Elohim, son of God. These are not descendants. The term yeladeh, according to scholars, actually means one who is born in the house of or servant of the giant. So what are we looking at then? Because the giants, well, I thought these guys were the giants. Now we're saying these are the servants of the giants. Right. I think what we're looking at here, and this is what Sharon and I wrote in our book, Veneration, is that what we're looking at here is a, a cult, a warrior cult. And one of the clues is in uh, six, 2 Samuel 21, verse 16, one of the Yelade Hat Rafa, one of the, let's say, servants of the Rephaim, is named Ishbi Benab. That's at least how we see it when we look at it with our English-speaking eyes. But the actual term, when you break it down, and, and credit to our friend uh, Brian Gadawa for this. He's a, an award-winning Hollywood screenwriter, but he's also the author of a series of seven novels called Chronicles of the Nephilim. So he kind of blazed a trail down this, this research. Uh, Ishbi ben Ov, because the B in Hebrew is actually pronounced like a V in English. So Ishbi ben Ov would be the correct way of reading his name. Ben means son of, Ov means medium. Ishvi, son of the medium. Well, who did King Saul visit just before, the night before he was killed in battle with the Philistines? He visited the Ov, the medium of Endor, who summoned a spirit. She thought she was going to get her familiar spirit, but instead God sent the prophet Samuel, 
which is why when you read that account, uh, she cries out with a loud voice. I don't think that's who she was expecting to see. But Brian, in his novel about the life of David, speculated, what if Ishvi ben Ov was the son of the Ov that Saul visited the night before he was killed? Now, we don't know. That's, that's just an interesting plot device. But the point is this. What does an ove do? What does a medium do? Communicates with the spirit realm. So you've got this, you've got this guy here, Ishvi, son of the medium, who is called a servant of the Rafa, servant of the Rephaim, who were known to be spirit beings by the pagans around ancient Israel, who were venerated by the Canaanites. We know that for sure. We don't know that from the Philistines explicitly, but the evidence suggests that these giants that David and his men fought, yes, were probably physically much larger than the Israelites. I mean, Goliath at six foot nine was still a foot and a half taller than your typical Israelite soldier. Right. But worse than that, they were trained from youth for war, and they were probably demon-possessed because they were communicating with the spirit realm these demonic spirits of the Nephilim, the Rephaim. Right. In other words, think of them like uh, the, the berserkers of the Vikings. The Viking berserkers, they would bite their shields. They would go on to the, they would believe that they literally were transformed into bears or wolves in battle. They, they, would ne- they wouldn't tire. They felt no pain. They killed anyone who got in their path, which is why the Vikings finally got together and agreed to do away with berserkers because they were too dangerous even for Vikings. Right. So now think about that. You're five foot three, five foot four, and you're facing a guy who's like six, nine on the other side of the battlefield, who's been trained from youth to wage war. His spear is like a weaver's beam and he's demon possessed. No, thank you. Yeah, it's a bad day. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I've never been in in battle. I've never even, (laughs) I've never even played laser tag. (laughs) I'm past the age where my knees will tolerate that. As, you know, as a soldier, you, you have a better understanding of what that's like than I do. But just imagine if the guy you're facing across the battlefield is coming at you, has no fear of your weapons because he's supernaturally empowered. Yeah. I think that's what we're dealing with here. In, in, and again, all of this goes back to what happened at Mount Hermon because it was the spirits of the children that should never have been born, the Nephilim that are the demons that are with us today. And again, that was, the, that was the, the default understanding of the early Christian church. Yeah. Augustine came along around the year 400, and he was like, no, this is too weird. And he popularized the theory that it was the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain, and somehow that created these evil men. And they've de-supernaturalized the Bible for the last 1,600 years. If the early church were to see the way most churches, most pastors today exegete the Bible, teach the Bible, they said, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? you you've totally taken the supernatural war out of the Bible. Yeah, which is why nobody believes in God anymore. Jesus, anything like that, everybody's just gone. Yeah. If Jesus is just a life coach, then, well, okay, I'm going to pick one who uh, tells me that I'm okay doing what I'm doing instead of one who says that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. And that's, that's the rationalization that you get nowadays. It's just like, well, if God is all-knowing and great like why does he say that i'm bad and this you know this and that so they just kind of rationalize from there and it just floats off into whatever kind of spaghetti monster in the sky they want to believe in but right right it's yeah no i mean and like you mentioned when 
when it came to the berserkers and stuff like that i mean like the latest i guess example you can use recently is just probably like the nazis at that time they were kind of hopped up on drugs and whatever else was going on spiritually um demon possessed i believe and they would just go out there and wreak havoc on the world you know and that's well that's, even yeah even ahead, more sorry. recently we're seeing this among some of the uh, the islamists out there yeah. the islamic state fighters are, were known to be taking uh, certain kinds of uh, narcotics that yeah. would uh, put them into a, a fighting rage before they went out on the battlefield. So yeah, yeah there, there are examples of that. And of course, the Nazis were engaged in occultic practices, which sadly were brought over to the United States, some of them. Um, a researcher by the name of Peter Lavenda, who's uh, done a lot of research into the cult of Nazism. It was really more of a cult than it was a political party. Uh, puts it very plainly that we in the United States or elements within the United States sold its soul to the devil to get its hands on the secrets that the Nazis had uh, discovered through whatever it was they were doing in the, uh, you know, the years leading up to World War II. Yeah, it's, I mean, Operation Paperclip and things like that where we're bringing Nazis over to start NASA. They were taking over to Russia, doing what they do out there. It's just... It's it's crazy when you think about how many of our institutions nowadays were started up from Nazis on the run or Nazis that were given second chance or brought out this way and started like CIA, FBI, all kinds of things. And it's just like Nazis just continuing their work here in the yeah. States or overseas. It's well, you could you could argue that the Nazis really didn't lose World War II, that Germany lost, but the Nazis themselves continued on, and especially if you look at this in the context that we as Christians should, that this is not a war against other humans. Right. I mean, you know, Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's what that verse means. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and cosmic rulers over this present darkness. These entities, evil intelligences who want to destroy us. Now, many of them, the, those who came down before the flood and commingled with human women, right. were dispatched to Tartarus, the abyss. Uh, that's who comes out of the abyss in Revelation 9, by the way. These watchers who've been punished by uh, being confined in chains in gloomy darkness, according to Peter, 2 Peter 2, and uh, Jude, verses 6 and 7. But there were other entities called sons of God who were delegated authority after the Tower of Babel incident. And so we're still dealing with entities who have rebelled against God's authority. Those are the ones that uh, God uh, condemned in, in Psalm 82. Uh, when you read Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9, you see that when God numbered the nations, when he divided the nations after the Tower of Babel, confused his speech, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God, the number of Baneha Elohim. Most English Bibles will say the number of the sons of Israel. Mm. But again, when you go back to the oldest Hebrew texts, and, and this is because our Hebrew texts for our English translations come from the Masoretic Jewish text, the Masoretic Hebrew text, rather, uh, which wasn't completed until about the 10th century AD. The older text, like the Septuagint translation, which was uh, completed by Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, about uh, 250 years before Jesus was born. Right. Uh, the Septuagint, which is, by the way, useful in the same sense as the Book of Enoch. It helps us understand what Jewish religious scholars thought about the Old Testament in that day, right. which is interesting because uh, there are some places, for example, when David went out to fight the Philistines in the Valley of the Rephaim, southwest of Jerusalem, uh, in the Septuagint, it's translated the Valley of the Titans. 
because again, they understood the connection between the Titans, the Watchers, the Apkalu, and these uh, giants that were created by those entities, the Nephilim, the Rephaim. Um, anyway, the oldest Hebrew text in Deuteronomy 32 make it clear that uh, it should be translated the sons of God. In fact, the Septuagint uh, actually renders it uh, by the uh, number of the nations according to the number of heavenly beings. Hmm. Well, when you look at the number of nations that God numbered when he divided the nations in Genesis chapter 10, which is the table of nations, um, the descendants of Noah, you count 70. Now, does that mean there were exactly 70 sons of God that were deployed over the nations? Okay, you get Moab, and you get Edom, and you get Assyria, and you get Greece, and you get... Not necessarily. In the ancient world of the Bible, the ancient Near East, which uh, is a term scholars use to describe, uh, if we were looking at a map today, describes uh, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, uh, Kuwait, Western Iran, Southern Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Northern Egypt. That's the ancient Near East. That um, number 70 represented the full set. So if you wanted to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you everything, uh, every, every marble that I have in my collection, I'm giving you my 70 marbles. It means not one left out. You get them all. Regardless of how many they are, there are specifically, you're getting them all. That's what the number 70 represented. So essentially what Deuteronomy 32 is telling us is that when God numbered the nations after the Tower of Babel, he was essentially saying, okay, you don't want to deal with me because Babel was essentially intended to be a, an abode of the gods on earth. Um, you'll have to deal with my subordinates. And trust me, this is not going to be uh, a, a, a blessing. <laughs> and it's not a coincidence that the neighboring Canaanites believed that there were 70 sons of El, their creator God, who lived on Mount Hermon. The Egyptians, in their story of the... Uh, uh, the the uh, the death of Osiris at the hands of his evil brother Set, believed that Set had seventy or seventy two co-conspirators, which numerically speaking or symbolically speaking, essentially means the same thing. All of the other gods, so God delegated to the to all of the nations on earth, basically angelic supervisors, chaperones, whatever but they did not rule justly. We see David even say this in, in Psalm 58. Do you indeed rule justly, you gods? And then he goes on to condemn them for ruling unjustly. And then in Psalm 82, like I said, it's like a courtroom scene where God condemns them for ruling unjustly. He put all of the world under these other fallen angels, except he reserved Israel for himself. And in Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 and 20, he warns Moses, don't you follow after them. When you move into these lands where the people are worshiping the sun and the moon and the host of heaven, don't you do it. You know, you're, you're mine. You belong to me. Right. So that, that's the situation on earth. So that, these are the rebellions that we have seen in, in the Bible. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobeying God. Genesis 6, the sons of God who descended to Mount Hermon and created these uh, monstrous Nephilim who perished in the flood but continue on the earth as demons to this day. And then the Babel incident, where humanity tried to build a tower, not to physically reach into heaven, but to become an abode of the gods. And I made this case in my first book, The Great Inception, where there's some existing Sumerian poetry about a king named Enmerkar, who, like Nimrod, was the second king of the city of Uruk after the flood. I mean, the Sumerians knew that there was a great flood that swept over. Right. 
and he had a massive building project for which he tried to uh, put, the, put the muscle on a neighboring kingdom called Arata. And this was to build up the temple at the city of Eridu, which was known as the oldest city in Mesopotamia. It was also the site of what, um, what was the oldest ziggurat, that's the step pyramids that you see in Mesopotamia, like, right. a, like a pyramid, but a little different. It would have been the largest in Mesopotamia as well, except it was never completed. But this poem describes why he was trying to do it. It was to build an abode of the gods. Now, again, that's not in the Bible. So do we know for sure that's why God stopped the construction? No, we don't know that for sure. But it was important enough for God to personally come down and intervene. And then afterwards said, look, if you don't want to deal with me, you're going to deal with these sons of God, these, which is a term in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that always refers to these angelic beings. And again, I know that that's not the consensus view of uh, Christian Bible teachers or pastors today. It's not what's being taught at seminary. They will say that, no, no, because we see this phrase in the New Testament, sons of God, daughters of God, that it must be the same. Because in the New Testament, it refers to us and our destiny right. when we are restored to the family of God, like the prodigal son. That's not what it means in Hebrew. That's not what it means in the Old Testament. I'm sorry. <laughs> you cannot redefine the Hebrew language for Hebrew speakers. They know what it meant. And that's how it's defined in the Septuagint. And that was the understanding of the Jews of Jesus' day. That was the understanding of the early church. Um, God basically delegated this authority to these angels who decided to abuse their power to be worshipped as gods. And it was the understanding of the Jews of Jesus' day that Baal was just one of these fallen angels. In fact, Jesus himself identified Baal in, uh, I think it's Matthew 12, but also in uh, Revelation 2. Uh, Baal as Satan. In Revelation 2, it's in reference to the city of Pergamum, where he says, I know where you live, where Satan's seat is. Well, that's a, that's a reference to the great altar of Zeus. And Zeus was just the Greek name for Baal, the storm god. So, yeah, if Satan is real, and Jesus said he's Baal, then we have to consider the possibility that maybe God knew what he was talking about in Psalm 82 and Exodus 12 and elsewhere, where he calls these entities gods. Yeah, it all ties in extremely. It's I mean, it's all very confusing for the casual listener. But you know, when you kind of break, this is the deep end of the pool. No, oh, yeah, it's super deep end. We're in fifteen feet pool here, and yeah, it's no, it's I mean, like I mentioned, it's I'd always tried to get into it, like in the past, reading books and different things. But if you don't read the Bible regularly, it's kind of over your head, and you know where everything else fits in between. But you try to pick up little pieces here and there where you can and try to make sense of it. But I mean, I guess we can want to take it to kind of up to today, kind of, I know we spoke about kind of like Iraq and like the war and stuff like that. I do believe and I would get laughed at when I would speak of this thing, but I don't believe that we were in like Iraq and all these places in the middle East for obviously WMDs didn't exist. And there's all these kind of things where they're for the poppy fields, you know, but I think there was something deeper to why we're there um, and why we're kind of fighting these wars out there. Because like you mentioned, these are areas that were obviously called different names nowadays, but back in the day, they were in the Bible of being, you know, some areas of, of significance um, when it came to like the watchers and Nephilim, you know, things like that. And then we spoke mm-hmm. about LA Marzulli, how there was, you know, they were flying bones and bodies out of Afghanistan, you know, 
there's something else going on. And I've always thought that we were kind of fighting a war, um, I guess, on the outside for the casual person watching the news. We were there because of terrorism or whatever. But for those who kind of like in the know, they're, you know, deep behind the veil, they know why we're out there. Um, mm-hmm. And that there's actually some kind of war, spiritual war that we're fighting on the, you know, on the deeper end of it. Um, and I've I've always held that kind of theory even during my time in the military, stuff like that. But I mean, you obviously can't prove any of it, but it's, there's something else, you know, that's actually going on. You have any any kind of, you know, like idea or well, anything like that? Well, yeah, I'm, again, I'm very open to that idea. The idea of territorial spirits is biblical. We see that most plainly in the book of Daniel, where he's told about the prince of Persia uh, interfering with the mission of the messenger angel, withstood him for 21 days, and then he did go back and help Michael with the uh, the prince of Persia, because, and then the prince of Greece would come, and, and so on. So we get this understanding of territorial spirits, but we, we even see it in uh, the story of David, who... Uh, was being chased by Saul and laments that uh, if he is driven out of Israel, he would have no part in Yahweh because it was understood that Israel belonged to Yahweh. And so he, if he was driven into Moab, well, I have to worship Chemosh because he's the God over there, but I don't want to worship Chemosh. Right. Uh, we also see it in the story of uh, the prophet Elisha when the, uh, the attendant to the king, I think it's Naaman was the name of the Syrian who uh, was suffering from leprosy and he went down to visit Elisha and um, he was told to bathe in the, uh, I believe it was the Jordan River. I'm, I'm forgetting these specifics of the story. But the point is, when Naaman wanted to return back to Syria, he took cartloads of dirt from Israel with him so that he would always be able to worship on that holy ground. Mm-hmm. So this was a common understanding. Uh, in fact, when you go further back in Mesopotamia, each city had its own patron deity. So, um yeah, the city of Uruk was sacred to the goddess Inanna, or Ishtar, the goddess of sex and violence. Um, it had previously been sacred to the sky god Anu, but this was one of the changes that was made by Enmerkar, who identify as Nimrod. He replaced uh, Anu and the temple of Anu with a bigger temple to Inanna in the city of Uruk. Uh, the city of Ur was sacred to the moon god called Nana, or Sin, uh, the city of Eridu was sacred to the god of the Abzu, the god of the abyss, called Enki. And think about that, that Nimrod wanted to build up this temple as an abode of the gods directly above where they thought the abyss was located. Right. Did that have something to do with God? So, but anyway, the point is that there are locations out there that are known, were known to be sacred to specific deities. The ancient city of Nippur, or interestingly, Nibru is sometimes how it's transliterated, which is where Zechariah Sitchin and all of his followers get confused about Nibiru, an alien planet. No, Nibru was the city that was sacred to the chief god of ancient Sumer called Enlil. And that's where the Mesopotamian divine council met. The chief gods, the sun god Shamash and the moon god Sin and the, you know, Inanna and Enki, they would all gather at Nippur or Nibru. Right. So is there something sacred there still to this day? Well, it's possible. It's possible. I, I argued in the book Bad Moon Rising that, uh, that Islam was essentially a, a plan B by the old gods of Mesopotamia who were caught by surprise when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We see this mentioned in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, if I remember correctly. I can look that up while I'm talking. Uh, 
basically said that if the gods of this, the spirits of the age or the rulers of the age, the archons, had understood what was going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I was correct. It's 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. Um, none of the rulers of this age understood it. And in this context, archons is referring to supernatural beings, the, these right, you know, small g gods, the fallen angels. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that by sending Jesus to the cross, they were helping him fulfill his mission. Right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think that there is no Allah per se, that it's a, a coalition sort of like you know, operating behind a Wizard of Oz type character, you know, right. the great and powerful Allah. Anyway, is it possible that we're in that part of the world trying to find something? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, I, I don't know that that's what's going on, but you know, I'd started writing a novel sometime back with that as the premise until I realized, yeah, this has kind of been done by some bad sci-fi movies. So, you know, I, I'll wait until I know more about the ancient world before I try my hand at something like that. Now, I know that there's been a, a story floating around the internet here recently that uh, Hillary Clinton was looking for the, uh, the resurrection chamber of Gilgamesh and his remains and the bones of the Nephilim. That is not correct. That was actually a, just a Freedom of Information Act request that was submitted to the State Department by a private citizen. There's no reference. If you look at the actual page, and I downloaded the PDF of that search from right. the log of FOIA requests, there's no mention of Hillary's emails in there. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. It was done in 2018. She was no longer head of the State Department at that point. Right. She, she resigned from the Department of State in 2012 so she could run for president in 2016. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's not the case. I even looked at the uh, archive of Hillary's emails at WikiLeaks and did a word search through her email archive. There's nothing in there that is even close to Giants or Nephilim or Gilgamesh. So, uh, I, and I know that there was a story back in 2003. Um, in March of 2003, the BBC reported that a German archaeological team had found the tomb of Gilgamesh. And I talked about this when Sharon and I first started our podcast back in 05. We had talked about that and said, wow. And then the U.S. invaded just a month later. Isn't that coincidence? Well, it turns out... Uh, because I realized I was repeating the story based on just that BBC article. And maybe I should do, do a little digging right, right. <laughs> see if that was actually true. So I found the academic paper by the German archaeologists who were there, led by, as a team led by George Fassbinder, is the archaeologist's name. And what Fassbinder and his team did was they found the site of ancient Uruk, which was the center of Nimrod's kingdom. And they used a magnetometer. Hmm to scan for anomalies in the soil. What they were looking for was trying to develop a new way to guide archaeologists in the field. It's like, look, uh, it's like ground penetrating radar. Right. We found these strange anomalies in the soil. This is probably where you should dig if you're looking for something. And they, they reported that what they found was a rectangular shaped anomaly in what had been the bed of the Euphrates River 5,000 years ago. And that kind of is like the description of the tomb of Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic. Right. So, okay, well, that's really interesting, but they didn't actually dig anything. So, no, they didn't find the tomb of Gilgamesh. They found something that might be kind of like the description of the tomb, but they didn't dig. As far as I can find, nobody's found the bones of Gilgamesh. Nobody's found the tomb of Gilgamesh. So, uh, it's, it's a fascinating theory. It'd be great to write a, a novel based on that and what might be done with it. But being married to a molecular biologist who got a degree with an emphasis in genetics, I can tell you that DNA doesn't last that long when it's buried underwater 
in that part of the world. So there's nothing that could be <laughs> resurrected from the bones of Gilgamesh anyway. So, yeah. I know it's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's just, it's just extremely interesting. I mean, everybody wants to find something out there. They want to be the, you know, they want to mm-hmm. have like proof and it just, but they kind of skip over the fact that you have to kind of prove that, you know, it's actually real well, you know, things like yeah. that. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, I'm all over it as well. It's, sometimes I'm like, oh, man, it looks so interesting. I want that to be true. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> and that's why, you know, Sharon and I are writing books that are yeah. based on our research into this. You know, I wanted to know, what yeah. did the pagans around ancient Israel know about the Rephaim? That's why our next book is called Giants, Gods, and Dragons, because they're important in the biblical narrative, and they've got roles to play in end times prophecy. Right. But let's stick to what we can prove and not get off onto speculation about what we've read somewhere on the internet because there's a lot of misinformation and frankly a lot of disinformation that's being put out there yeah and it's it's upsetting i mean so and we go back to kind of like the military aspect of it um for the people that are kind of in the know if anybody knows who battalion m is um military um, would have some understanding of you know that there's actually branches of the military that have joined forces to kind of i would say combat any kind of spiritual things like demons or you know stuff like that on the earth but they're definitely how should i put this delicately without giving too much information people that come from different parts like like different branches say like like marines seals special forces guys um, that are put into this group called Battalion M, um, you know, out into the world and you know, kind of handle stuff like that. Um, now, actually, seen them. I've never actually seen a person that's in Battalion M, but I have seen patches, um, you know, and as as far as like logos and stuff like that of the actual battalion. So I do know that they actually do exist. Um, spending some time overseas. Um, I got to know some people that work for black sites, let's say, um, CIA, stuff like that. Um, and I can't say that they have at least referenced them in the past. Mm. And that's so I do know that they're out there. Um, and if you try to look for any kind of information online, obviously you won't find anything of them. Um, you hear like stories here and there, but I, do, you know, I, I can't say that there's actually parts within our military that are actually out there fighting. And if you and if you search for them, you probably wind up on a list somewhere. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay, well, great. I'm on that list now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, I've been trying to track these guys down. I mean, I obviously probably never will, but from what I've spoken to certain people overseas and stuff like that, it's, they're out there. And I've been trying to find well, any kind of information I can, but yeah. Stranger, stranger things are, are actually true. I mean, a few years ago, there was that movie uh, called The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was based on the book by John Ronson, which actually chronicles an actual effort by the United States military to weaponize the occult. So, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. We know Hitler was trying to do similar things within living memory of people who are still alive today. I mean, my mother was alive during World War II. So, you know, it's not that long ago that these things were happening and that uh, we're we're living in an age where... Uh, you know, the spirit realm, excuse me, is being explored by people who, who, who it would surprise us to to learn that they're 
that they are so doing. In fact, Josh and I wrote about this in uh, uh, The Day That Earth Stands Still. Uh, Josh really handled that part of the book, but he documented the uh, connection between the late Dr. Edgar Mitchell, one of the first Apollo astronauts, and the contacts that he had or was trying to establish with uh, President Obama to um, bring to him information about what he called aliens from a contiguous universe. Hmm. So uh, Dr. Mitchell was also one of the co-founders of the Noetic Institute or the Institute of Noetic Science, which was featured in the Dan Brown novel, The Lost Symbol. And there's some very uh, intelligent people who are connected that one of them, by the way, is on television on a regular basis, Van Jones, who is a regular commentator and contributor to CNN, uh, a, a democratic strategist or whatever. He was a, a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I, I love the way my friend, uh, Dr. Michael Bennett describes uh, uh, the Institute of Noetic Science. Essentially, they're researching scientific ways to become demonically possessed. They're trying to find ways to contact the spirit realm. Right. Because apparently what we have in the Bible, which as our friend L.A. Marzulli calls it, is the guidebook to the supernatural. Apparently that's not enough for them. Right. They want to reach out and contact it on their own. Well, here's a, here's a clue. If you are desiring that contact, you are welcoming those spirits to contact you. It just might not happen the way you think it's going to happen. So, um, yeah, I'm sure that there are people out there to this day in very influential positions in, inside government intelligence agencies and the military who are trying to figure out ways to use the supernatural for whatever. You know, <laughs> for all for kinds whatever. Of, yeah. Right. No, it's definitely, like, like I mentioned, it was, I mean, along and, these. And, along even the, that, and even that gets back to what we were started with the conversation with the Book of Enoch, because even that gets back to. Mount Hermon and the Watchers, because that was the whole purpose of the Watchers. They were essentially trading information for access to human women. But yeah, I mean, like all kinds. One of the things I have found when you kind of look back and think about it, the jump that we made from like the first Model Ts to like flight to the computers and then to like cell phones and like in the span of like less than a hundred years. I mean, yeah, it just like that. So, I mean, there was something there in between that just kind of sparked. And then after, from there, we started creating all kinds of things and technologies, satellites, rockets, you know, just all kinds of things that, I mean, like from before, you know, when Model T's were around, there was nothing. I mean, it just kind of took a huge leap into where we are now. And now it's, I mean, there's all kinds of things you would never even imagine Mm-hmm. going into space and like we carry these things where we can speak to each other on the you know through the lens all the time on our phones and it's just it's crazy nowadays i mean who knows what else is out there you know yeah. like they always say we always get the technology from the government or whoever but they're like 30 years advanced from what they give us and you know stuff like that so it's I mean, who knows i mean just look at um the large hadron collider i mean who knows? A lot of people say that they're trying to contact like other other realms and they're trying to go into other galaxies and you know stuff like that. But it's just it's crazy nowadays. It's only going to get worse. I mean, especially now. Well, yeah. It's it seems like it's gotten a lot worse now. You know. Well, this was this is what Daniel prophesied at a time when knowledge would increase. You know, and I think of my mother. She's in her uh, early eighties, 
and um, she's having just a, a really, really hard time trying to figure out how to work her smart TV. And we, we, don't, we don't even have it connected to the internet. So she's not even trying to figure out how to switch from Netflix to Hulu or anything like that. It's just that it's not like the old television where you just turned it on and you selected your channel. Mm-hmm. She now has to turn it on, select an input source, and then bring up the cable. And so she's got two separate remotes to juggle now. And she, you know, but, you know, for, for me, because I was, well, I mean, you know, the computer, personal computer came along after my birth, but I've, I've always had kind of an aptitude for it. So for me, it's like, okay, well, let's go through this again. But I have to stop and remember, I mean, for one thing, she's in her 80s, yeah. um, still living independently. So she's fine there. But she was born at about the time the television was first just being thought of and developed. So they went from the small nine inch screen to you know, color inches. to remotes to now it's a 55 inch TV that's on her, her, her uh, entertainment center and it takes two remotes and she's got a rem- So yeah, it, 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 the, there's a day coming, I'm sure, Paul, where I'm going to hit the same kind of technological wall because the speed <laughs> at which things are changing is so fast that it's at some point going to get to a point where you just say, okay, this far and no farther. And if I have to, I'm going to go out and buy used computers and used TVs so I can keep using my, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the world in which we live. Things are increasing at such a rapid rate. And with it comes the promise that again, goes back to, well, not just Mount Hermon, but also the, uh, the garden, ye shall be as gods. It's gotta be frustrating for people, especially like, let's say like, like your mother or people that were born like in the early 1900s that they're, they've already gotten older, you know, advanced in age, and they kind of miss the whole technology boom. And then for people that were born, let's say after 2010, they don't know what it's like to, to like, not, have, not it. have it, right? So the people like yourself and myself, I'm kind of on the edge of it as well, that knew what it was like not to have anything before. And then all of a sudden now we have everything we have now. So you're kind of on, on both sides of the fence. Um, you know, like my father, he was born in the fifties. Um, so he was obviously born way before any of that was out, but now he's trying to catch up like the phones and, you know, TVs and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of rough for a lot of people, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of scary in a way to see what might come here in the next maybe 20, 30 years, but also exciting, maybe just some kind of groundbreaking stuff where we can fix all kinds of illnesses and cure cancer, you know, stuff like that. But it's definitely we're we're moving rapidly and it's it's, it's kind of scary for a lot of people <laughs> yeah yeah well you know just come quickly jesus because uh i don't think the world's going to take much more of this no no it's the way we're going now it doesn't look like it um i mean the only thing we can do is just pray for the best and hopefully it comes a lot sooner than later uh, mm-hmm. yeah but uh i don't know well, Mr. Gilbert, I really appreciate it we're coming down to the end of our time here but um can you please let us know i, I know you were speaking about a new book that was coming out. Can you kind of give us a little clue on what that's yeah. going to be about? Uh, yeah, Sharon and I've got a book that is uh, going to be out. In fact, you can see the cover of my shoulder right here. Yeah. Uh, it is coming out in November from Defender Publishing called Giants, Gods, and Dragons. It, it began as um, a book about the rider on the pale horse. I mean, obviously with COVID-19 and uh, the, you know, the pandemic being top of mind, that seemed like a relevant topic, but we decided to expand the scope a little bit to make it a little more evergreen because the coronavirus will pass. And when it passes, and we hope soon, 
uh, or we develop herd immunity and it just kind of fades into the background like the seasonal flu, which is probably yeah. what's going to happen. Uh, the book would no longer be relevant. So we decided to apply what we've been doing with the divine counsel concept. And again, credit to Dr. Michael Heiser for making that research so available to the rest of us. The idea that these gods of the ancient world were real, that the prophets and apostles knew it. And when you understand that and understand what the pagans believed about those small g gods, the Bible makes a lot more sense. So we applied that to end times prophecy. And we find that the writers of the apocalypse were not just symbols for conquest and war and famine and, uh, uh, and, and death, but were entities. I mean, John named the rider on the pale horse, Thanatos in Greek. Hmm. Well, he was known to the Greeks as the god of death. And hell followed with him. Well, that's Hades. Right. He's known entity. to the, So, gee, who are the other writers on the, of the apocalypse? So we name those in the book. We talk about the dragons that are in scripture. And of course, Satan, everybody knows from Revelation chapter 12, is the seven-headed red dragon who's cast down from heaven. Right. But we also discuss the strange beast, Revelation 13, who comes out with a, sort of a leopard, lion, bear thing. But when you understand what the ancient Mesopotamians, how they described and depicted dragons, that's exactly how dragons were depicted in ancient Mesopotamia. Mm. Besides which, you've got uh, references to other creatures in the Old Testament who uh, are described as flying, fiery serpents, seraphim. What would you call a flying, fiery serpent? Well, it's a dragon, I think. Right. <laughs> so, and then we look at the giants again, which is a subject we covered in, in veneration, but we added some new things that we had uh, learned since the publication of that book uh, and show that Ezekiel was aware that they've got a role to play in the end times, which makes sense. I mean, if the church is raptured out of here, regardless of whether it's pre or mid, we think a post-tribulation rapture doesn't make any sense. But anyway, pre or mid, we'll be out of here before Armageddon. And we explain why we think the war of Gog and Magog is actually the war that leads up to Armageddon. It concludes at Armageddon. Um, that uh, the that uh, if we're out of here then, and the restrainer has been removed, as we see in First uh, oh, Thessalonians, I believe I'm probably getting it wrong. Maybe Second Thessalonians. Anyway, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, that is keeping a lid on things as bad as they are, they would be so much worse. We think it's a demonic army, an army of demonically possessed humans that comes against Israel for that final battle at Armageddon. So you know, we, and we go into the scriptures and all of that, and also what the pagans believed about these gods to make our case. Um, when we speculate, we'll tell you we're speculating, but for the most part, this is all scriptural exegesis and combining it with what archaeologists have discovered. A lot of this stuff, Paul, is only coming to, the, uh, to, to, to academia within the last 40 years. It's only been since about 1980 that scholars generally agreed, yeah, there was a cult of the dead in ancient, you know, the, 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 the people around ancient Israel that drew in the Israelites. Before 1980, there weren't enough pagan texts that have been translated to make that case, but scholars have shifted. So we're the first generation that really has access to all of these puzzle pieces. Right. And, and so we try to put that together in a way that makes more sense of end times prophecy. And uh, that's what giants, gods, and dragons is all about. Yeah. It's, I mean, end time prophecies is probably one of my favorite topics. Um, and I guess maybe along the line, maybe somewhere sometime down the line, we'd have to have you back because I would really like to get your, view on like the Vatican and, and how, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Father Malachi Martin. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like on his whole idea of, you know, like the, 
the devil was actually let into the Vatican a while back and just kind of how everything's been escalating within yeah. the church. What he um, called the super force. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's very, it's like it's going downhill real fast. I'm, I'm Roman Catholic. Um, and it's getting kind of hard to, I mean, I don't recognize this Pope as my Pope. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, there's a whole thing behind it and we'll have to get, come back again and maybe, you know, maybe discuss that whole thing. But <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah we'll happy to do it. I, I love talking about this. You know, I, I'm certainly not an expert, but if anything, if anything, I hope what what we've been doing the last few years and the fact that we've written several books now uh, shows is that anybody, if you devote yourself to it, you can dig into. You know, I don't. If I've got a special gift, I suppose it's being able to tune out the rest of the world while I'm reading something I find really interesting. Right. You know? Which, which is good when you're trying to research something. Not so good when your you know mom is calling you for dinner, which is why my mother had to come over and you know kind of hit me to get me to put the book down. But, you know, God has wired this in a strange way. And I'm just grateful that he's finding a way to use it for his purposes. And what we conclude, and the reason we put this kind of a sensationalist title in the book is it's, it's our hope that we can communicate, especially to younger people, right. that we're in the middle of an epic story that is more exciting than Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, because it's real. Yeah. It's historic. And we're all part of it. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it's a lot of people nowadays, if it's anything longer than 30 second soundbite, you're just not, you're not going to be able to capture their attention. And it's, well, it's unfortunate. I mean, <laughs> it's extremely unfortunate. We need help turning in, turning it into short videos for, uh, you know, Instagram or TikTok or something. Uh, hey, we, we'll be on. <laughs> there we go. The TikTok Bible. That's it. Yeah. I mean, everything on, everything on Instagram <laughs> nowadays, you can hashtag anything, you can hashtag the crap out of it. And it's, it'll, you know, it'll get out there. I mean, right. It'll get to the right people, but I mean, that's definitely a thought there. Um, like I said, it's, it's, it's hard to keep anyone down. Like I mentioned, everybody's on, on the move. I mean, work, kids, school. I mean, it's just, yep. Yep. we've got to find a way to, to reach all them, but we'll definitely have to set that up for some time in the future because it's one of, like I said, one of my topics that I really like to get into. And if I can hear any kind of other point of view, you know, it, it's great, but uh, for everybody else, um, they can find you on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook at Derek yep. Gilbert as well. Um, and uh, is there anywhere yeah. they can find you your, your books? Is it like on Amazon or on the website? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Amazon. Um, you can find them in hard copy in Barnes and Noble, which freaked me out. Went up to Springfield and actually saw my book on a bookshelf at Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. For me, that was like, you know, real. Yeah, yeah, that was that was like the Cubs winning the World Series again. Uh, oh, no. But yeah, the the best place to find them. Yeah, I know. The best place to find them is at uh, skywatchtvstore.com because uh, we can offer them as part of packages if you're interested. Uh, Tom Horn, the publisher, Defender Publishing, uh, offers them at Defender at uh, skywatchtvstore.com as a part of bigger packages. And so you get a lot more for your money. But if you're interested, the Kindle versions are available at uh, Amazon. So if you're overseas and you see this, uh, you can get it like right now and uh, available for your, uh, your e-reader. Awesome. Yeah, so everybody, please definitely take a look at that. We'll have all the links linked down below in the show notes and everything. So we'll get that on on all our platforms as well, especially on Facebook. Um, but I would like to thank you for your time, sir. Uh, we'll definitely have to reach out again and have you back on maybe sometime in the future, um, like I said. Um, so I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, please, please, please reach out and get those books. Find them on social media, like I mentioned, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook at Derek Gilbert. 
Um, for us, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, as well as Our Heart Radio at Truth Defender Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, like I mentioned as well. Uh, we'll have the Discord, and I don't really like to give up PayPal's. I don't like asking for money from anybody. I don't need any kind of money. I don't make any money off of the show. That wasn't my plan from the beginning. Um, but hardware platforms and software do cost money um, and it gets real expensive sometimes so if anything yep. that's what that's going to be going to um, unfortunately left to where I don't do this for the money I don't need to um, I do it because it's extremely interesting and I love speaking to people about various topics um, as you can see on our YouTube channel we have a wide variety of guests and we're going to have a lot more wide variety uh, in the future um, so you guys, please stop in for the next one. Uh, like I mentioned, if you guys have any questions for myself or our guests, uh, guests or topic recommendations, you can find us at the Truth Defender seventeen seventy six at gmail dot com. I really appreciate you guys. You guys have a great rest of the week. Stay tuned for Friday. I think we're going to be going live on Friday with uh, Dark Waters again. So we're going to have those scary stories just in time for Halloween. Um, we'll be speaking about ghosts, Bigfoot dogmen uh, which were also in the bible as well um so that'll be up there as well so you guys look out for that on friday i'll be sending out the link to the live on all social media so uh really appreciate you guys you guys stay blessed out there and stay frosty mm-hmm.